Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Galatians in chapter 3, starting at verse 23 through uh, verse 29. And so I invite you to look that up in your own uh, Bible if you'd like to, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Galatians 3, starting at verse 23. try to get a few of those out now. There may be a few more. We were doing colds this week at the, the Scott House, but getting most of the way through that. But uh, let's receive now from God's word. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So today is is going to be our our last stop on this series I call to Explain Yourself, which has been about really better understanding some of the, the core beliefs among Christians generally, but also some that are specific to Baptists. So we're living in a time when the rest of society has less and less understanding of what the church even really is. And so being able to explain some of our beliefs in a clear and compelling way would definitely help a little bit. Unfortunately, though, we're also living in a time when the church seems to have less and less understanding of what the church is. And that, that's a bad combination when we take these two together. And so I want to keep looking at ways that as a church we can offer and encourage opportunities for discipleship that will allow us both to know and represent Jesus well to others. And leading up to today, we looked at what it means to call Jesus Lord, why we trust the Bible as our primary way to know him, why each believer should grow their personal understanding of what the Bible teaches, and what it means that we are all priests, as we talked about last week. And for today, my original intent was to focus very heavily on baptism. And I will talk about baptism, but this final message ended up focusing in more so on what it means for a Christian to have freedom because of their faith. And so we'll also spend some time with that too, because that's just where the passage kind of led. And so there's quite a bit of meaning meaning packed into this short passage for for today. So I do want to dig into that as we start. And this is a passage that focuses on the contrast between two ways of living, between faith and law. Because verse 23 starts, it says, Before the coming of this faith, meaning before Jesus came. Before Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. And by the law, just in case people aren't clear on what the law is, the the law that Paul is talking about, really this is the the overall story and the specific commands found in the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Torah. 
So, and in the law, uh, you know, Jewish scholars really, they identified 613 commands within the law that um, a person was meant to, to try to, to live by. So, it's the 613 commands, but it's also the overall story in these five books. That's the law. But even within the law, there is this recognition that people are not able to live up to the law. Moses declares as much in the final book that there is this problem with people's hearts. They, they want to reject the law. People cannot be good enough to follow it unless something could happen and change their hearts somehow. And when you go beyond the law into the next set of books, which is the prophets, we start to see more and more references to someone who is going to come, to a Messiah, to God's anointed, to the Christ, who will actually enable people's hearts to change in such a way that they want to love God and others. But Paul is specifically talking about the law here, and he compares it to something that in Greek society was, it was called a pedagogue. But it's what the, the NIV translates as guardian in this passage, which you see a couple of times. And so these guardians, these pedagogues, they were slaves, and they were given the responsibility within their family of the family that owned them or, uh, or hired them, depending on what kind of slaves they were. But their job was to take a child from about age six to puberty and guard them from the evils of society and train them in what the morally right way of living was. That was their, that was their job. And these guardians could often be very strict or even extremely harsh in how they carried out that job. They had total authority to treat that child however they wanted in order to get that result. Keep them out of trouble and make sure they know what, how they're supposed to act in this world. And so Paul writes that the, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So Paul is speaking really to other formerly Jewish Christians like himself who might still be trying to adhere to those 613 commands of the law, still trying to, to ground their identity and their righteousness in the law. And he's saying this is not the way to be Christian. That guardian from our childhood, it's not in charge of us anymore. The law was useful for exposing evil. It was helpful for demonstrating that our hearts need to be transformed. And the scriptures that also promised that God would send a savior who can actually do this. And now Paul says that Christ has come. We have Jesus and the law is not opposed to Jesus. The law shows us why we need Jesus. But now that we have Jesus, that's who we follow, not a list of commands. And Paul says, look, this is good news because the law divided people. The law was given to the Jews as God's chosen people who were called to be a witness to the world of who God is. But the law separated, first of all, Jews from Gentiles. At first, that was a feature, not a, a bug. God wanted that separation between his people and everybody else so that his people would remain pure and follow him and they would be a good example to other people. But by the time we reach Paul's day, this had turned into this air of superiority. Jews knew they were better than everybody else, and they certainly did not mix or involve themselves with anybody else. And they, you know, the law was their reason for doing that, or at least one of the reasons for doing that. But it wasn't just a sense of superiority from Jew to Gentile either. There was also that same sense uh, felt by men over women, and uh, that sense built into the structures as well for anyone over slaves, any freed people over slaves. In fact, 
it was a, a prayer that some Jewish men commonly said in that time to say, I thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And I think that might be the order they meant it in. Someone who prayed that was going to have a really hard time with what Paul was about to say because this was an extraordinary thing for this time and culture. Because Paul says, by faith, since you've outgrown that guardian, the law, you are all children of God. Everyone who is baptized into Christ, everyone who has this spiritual union by, with Jesus by putting faith in him, they're joined together as part of the body of Christ. They're part of the church. And these old divisions are obsolete as far as the church is concerned. The playing field is leveled when people have clothed themselves with Christ. And that's an interesting phrase and image there. Clothe yourself with Christ. Like, you know, get up in the morning and put on your Jesus suit, right? But Paul is probably pointing back to Roman culture again here because when you were a child with a guardian in Roman society, but then you transitioned to becoming an adult, uh, you were given uh, a special outfit. You were given this special toga. And that symbolized that you were being given now the full rights and responsibilities within your family and in the state. And so Paul tells the Galatian Christians that through faith in Jesus, they have what one commentator puts it as, he says, you've laid aside the old garments of the law and have put on Christ's robe of righteousness, which grants full acceptance before God. Right, so you clothe yourself with Christ. And in Christ, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, because you are all one. There's no spiritual hierarchy in the body of Christ. And we touched on that last week with this royal priesthood. You know, where the only high priest is Jesus, everybody else is a fellow priest. And this is still a good challenge today because in some Christian environments and churches and cultures, people do still wrongly imagine that sex or nationality or status can make them superior to others. But this statement when Paul made it, this is one of those just turn the world upside down kind of statements in the Bible. Nobody, certainly nobody raised in the Jewish tradition as Paul was, had thought this way before. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. So how you were born does not matter once you are reborn into the family of God. <clears throat> so that's kind of my segue into the final important Baptist belief that I do want to touch on in the series, which is baptism itself. And this passage doesn't talk about baptism in a lot of detail. You have to go to a few other places to get the whole picture. But it does help define what kind of faith commitment baptism is. Now, for me, growing up in a Baptist church, like, uh, you know, a lot of kids my age were all encouraged to go take baptism classes around age 12-ish, usually. That's just kind of what you do. And everyone from a good church family goes, and they, off for the most part, they undergo baptism afterward, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but there is a danger of turning it into just kind of a rite of passage, a thing you do so that you'll get a party afterward and your family's happy and everyone's happy and everyone in the church doesn't go, well, why didn't that one do it? Like, you know, that's, doesn't necessarily come from a place of spiritual maturity and a full sense of what that commitment to Christ is. I mean, you don't have to totally understand 
what a commitment to Christ is going to mean for you to get baptized in the same way that you don't have to totally understand what getting married means before you get married because you, you can't until you do it. You know, sometimes you just have to, you have to put yourself out there and make that commitment and learn it as you go. But you need to have some sense of here's what I'm saying I want to do. Here's the promise that I am making. And so Baptists, we practice believer's baptism. We don't baptize people with the expectation that the act changes that person's status with God. We baptize them as a symbol and a celebration of that person's faith in Jesus, of their desire to follow Jesus as their Lord. And we baptize by immersion. We don't, we don't sprinkle, we don't pour. So long as you can physically handle it, we want to dunk you good, okay? And that's, that's how Jesus was baptized. That's how anyone we read about in the New Testament was baptized. And, and so there's a significance to that act of going beneath the water and coming back up again, which is what I was you know, saying for the, to the kids a little bit. It symbolizes that dying of the old self, that you know, dying of that old life, and rising again with that new life found in Christ. So I'm dying to that slavery to sin that the law talks about, the one that the law revealed but couldn't fix. I'm dying to that, and I'm rising with this new life in Christ, the Christ who came so that hearts could actually be changed, so that people could do what God wants them to do and what is best for them. And speaking again of being clothed with Christ, this is one of the reasons churches often use special baptismal robes, often white ones. So it adds to that symbolism of coming back out of that water and sharing in that now, in that resurrection life of Jesus. And so today's passage, it highlights this transition from one kind of life to another. Different denominations will differ a little bit in their thinking here, but for Baptists, we would generally say that, <clears throat> that no one can be born a Christian. A faithful family and, and childhood faith is a wonderful blessing, but at some point, you have to make that your own choice about Jesus. And so there is this path of faith that is in Christ, or there is some other path. <clears throat> See, there's a, there's a kind of law that people with a Christian upbringing can follow, one where you don't necessarily have a living faith, but you do still try to follow the normal Christian rules, the cultural rules, the church rules. And whether you start with any Christian experience or not, you can certainly choose a path of lawlessness as well, one that rejects God altogether in the things of faith and just does whatever it feels. And so when a person is going through the waters of baptism, when they're declaring that they're turning away from perhaps it's law, perhaps it's lawlessness as the foundation of their life, and they're, they're coming back up instead to build life on this new foundation of Jesus and as a part of his church. And today's passage describes this as a very liberating experience. Because, right, it says, before the coming of this faith, three different things. We were held custody under the law. He says we were locked up in the law. We had this guardian over us. Three different ways he expresses this, this sense of imprisonment or being captive to something. The law, he says, is restrictive. It's impossible to live up to. The way of Jesus is the one we pursue willingly, out of gratitude, out of love, not out of obligation or fear. And so there's freedom in that. But when I was, I kept reading this passage, and I kept getting stuck when I was doing it, because what I wanted to try to get to was how you would explain, because this is explain yourself, how do you explain to a normal person 
How do you explain to some typical Nova Scotian who is not interested in religion at all? <coughs> right? That's, that's most of the people you know who aren't in a church building on Sunday, right? For the most part, they're probably not horribly anti-Christian. They probably just, they just don't care. <laughs> that's where most people are, I think. And so, how do you explain to someone like that that Christianity is freeing? Right? I mean, compared to the first century Jews who were expected to adhere to the law, we can see how faith in Jesus would be very freeing for them. Like the, the, the way of faith that Paul talks about compared to the strictness of the law, that's a clear upgrade in freedom. <laughs> but it's very different from most of the people around us who are not held in custody under the law, but instead are, are living in a way that is more lawless. They don't worry about choosing some best way they have to live. They just pick whatever seems to work best for them at whatever time in their life they're in. They have not agreed to be held to any particular standard. So they don't need to accept any complaint or criticism. They can't be hypocrites. You have to have something that people can hold you to, to be a hypocrite. And so compared to being a Christian, which still clearly does have some rules and expectations and requirements, aren't you more free if you just do things your own way? This was what I was pondering. And it's what I was still pondering on Thursday afternoon when I, uh, luckily I was, it was a bit of a roller coaster this week, but on Thursday I did feel well enough to travel up with, with Amy to Wolfville for the, the funeral of, of Bill Brackney. And I know a few people also watched that online. And he was, for those who don't know, he was my professor of theology and ethics in seminary. And he, for the, the year that, first year I was here, was still the, uh, the interim pastor at Faith. And so I got to study under him and I was his teaching assistant and then I got to work uh, alongside him as I got my start in ministry. And, uh, you know, it was about six months ago that he went from still a very incredibly active and vibrant senior citizen to uh, he nearly died of a, a severe infection that sort of came out of nowhere. And he did survive that, but he never actually recovered from that. And so it was six months of complications and setbacks and a great deal of, of pain and confusion and discouragement at times. And the first chance I had to go visit him in, in the hospital in Halifax was a time of, of great pain and discouragement and confusion. And so I kind of witnessed that part of the journey. I got to visit again in, in Kentville where he was going through a, a better time. There were some better times in the midst of it, but uh, what a hard journey. And so, you know, that's, that's a lot coming into that funeral anyway. I don't go to that many funerals just as a person going to a funeral these days. I, I've, I've probably officiated more than I have just attended to. And so the one thing that was notable for one thing about this service was that it spoke of him not at all. Uh, he wanted this to be entirely about how good God is. And so it was hymns and it was scripture readings. It was things that simply praised God and affirmed that his love never fails. Which knowing that journey was impactful on its own. But but boy, what I was not ready for was when Bill's good friend came up to preach, uh, his friend, uh, Reverend Dr. Dan Gibson. And I don't know what the medical specifics are uh, affecting Dr. Gibson, but I'm pretty sure he's about midway through the, the process of a, of a neurodegenerative disease. And so he was wheeled up in a wheelchair, wearing his clerical robe. He uh, you know, kind of held the mic with a one, one bent hand that could work well enough to hold a mic. And, uh, you know, he uh, had someone there to hold what I'm sure was a very large print manuscript and kind of point, point out the words that, the words that he had chosen as he prepared, the words that he did speak to us 
you know, in a, in a muddled voice that wasn't easy to follow. But boy, what a, what a powerful expression of faith that was. What a person to have preached the, the funeral of someone who had been through what someone like Bill was going through and who was going through this himself. And he began with, you know, words from the book of Job that I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end that he will stand upon the earth. And he proclaimed to us that to live without the hope of eternal life is to make despair your constant companion. And that's when I thought back to that question of freedom and how just doing what you feel like does not necessarily make you more free. Not when we face the reality that we all know, but which we hate to think about, which is that sooner or later we will all be robbed of everything we have in this world. That our vitality, our mobility, our intellect, our usefulness to others, our ability to care for ourselves and others, our ability to enjoy things we used to enjoy, it will all be stripped away. Maybe it will happen in an instant, maybe it will happen very gradually after a very long life, but it will happen. These present lives of ours are finite. We don't get to know how long or how hard our last chapter or chapters will be either. And so what does freedom mean when that is the reality of our lives? And and in this light, I feel like there's greater clarity about how Faith offers a freedom that neither law or lawlessness can offer. Because faith brings a freedom, first of all, as Dr. Gibson said, from despair. Christians have hope that death has already been conquered. Hope that is built on the solid foundation of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and 2,000 years of Christian witness rather than in wishful thinking, rather than in just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that maybe there's something more than darkness that awaits us. You know, my fortune teller said so. Romans 8 says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We wait for a real freedom in the life to come, and that gives us a freedom that you can't have any other way in this life. Faith also brings a freedom from the world's expectations. from that burden sometimes that those can be because some people let their lives be governed by expectations of family or examples of their their peers or keeping up with the Joneses, the empty promises of our world. And sometimes people even wonder, "Does, does my life matter? I mean, who are you if you don't accomplish something impressive with your life or if you don't end up with these piles of grandchildren and great grandchildren to remember you? But in faith, We believe that we are, in fact, invaluable, created in the image of God, redeemed by Jesus' own blood, and deeply and fully loved by God. The book of Galatians begins with these words, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Again, also speaking about the law there, but there are other yokes that people take on that Jesus can also free us from. Again, faith brings freedom as well from self-doubt and insecurity. Because, first of all, we, we know we're not perfect. We're not under that illusion. We know we've messed up. We don't pretend otherwise. 
We fact, in fact, we try to own these things and make them right however we can before we turn them over to God and humbly ask his forgiveness. And this makes it possible to let our failures increase our love and compassion for others instead of having them serve as this constant source of guilt and shame. Have you ever noticed how, you know, if you try to look back and remember all the details of some really good thing in your life that happened, sometimes it's just a blur. But if you want to look back uh, and think back to that time you just said that incredibly dumb thing or that time that you, you know, did that incredibly embarrassing thing, even some little thing from so long ago, you have like this perfect memory of that. You know, and, and sometimes guilt and shame follows us this way. We seem to be built to hold on to these things. But there's freedom in Christ to let go of those things and say, I have done my best to address it with this person. I have given that to God I'm forgiven. And so I leave from here better able to do it better next time, better able to have compassion for somebody else who screws up this way when I see it. This has grown who I am and not taken away from it. Lastly, faith brings a freedom from folly. That's a good preacher alliteration right there. Faith brings freedom from folly. And just like I said, it doesn't, faith doesn't prevent us from falling short because we're still human. But faith, it does give us access to God. It gives us access to that wisdom he offers through his word and through his spirit and through his church. And so faith gives us spiritual resources to understand what is going to be harmful and wasteful and to avoid these things. And not just what's going to be harmful and wasteful tomorrow, which can be hard to figure out, but what's going to ultimately be harmful and wasteful when you look back on it after a lifetime. So you don't realize that you devoted yourselves to things you can't take with you or to success in the the workplace at the expense of the people who loved you or some of these things that everyone says they know that they need to not do those things and yet so many people still reach the end of their lives and realize, I did it. You know, I was told not to do it. People said, watch out for it, and I did it anyway. Getting to do what we feel like can seem like freedom to the foolish, But actual freedom is being able to find your way to what is truly good, what is actually fulfilling in life. 1 Corinthians 10 says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So when people are baptized and they go under the water, they're not all dying to exactly the same things. Some die to legalistic religion or bad religion. Some die to aimless wandering. Some die to willful rejection of God. But when we come back up, we come back up the same. So in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We come back up with new spiritual lives that don't depend on who we were or on the status that the world can give us because we're clothed with Christ, representing him in this world. We're the ones with this beautiful privilege to be able to say, I'm on the side of life. So don't be afraid. You're not alone in this. This isn't all pointless. You're created. You're loved. You're meant for more than this. We have the beautiful privilege of being able to say, I'm on the side of grace. God is not itching to punish you. 
He was willing to lay down his very life to redeem you. And so I'm not here to get even or to return hurt for hurt. I have peace from God for all that he's forgiven me. And by his grace, I'm even strong enough to forgive you too. We have the beautiful privilege of being able to say, I'm on the side of truth. I don't always know the right answer, but I'm not going to make one up to look better than I deserve or grab something that I didn't earn in this life either. Because I believe there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a reliable way to tell the difference. And I'm not in the business of compromising what's true and right. Because I'm baptized into Christ. Because I'm clothed with Christ. So to come back to this whole idea of understanding ourselves well enough to explain ourselves, let me sum up a little bit of what we've looked at in this series, hopefully a little more quickly than you might expect from me, okay? So, as a Christian, specifically as a Baptist, what do I believe and how do I live? Well, I have faith that Jesus is everything the Bible says he is. He is my Savior, he is my Lord, he's my friend even, and he's That's true in my life and in my church. And so what he says goes, and I want to be as much like him as I can possibly be by obeying his commands and walking in his example. The lordship of Jesus Christ. I trust in the Bible. It's the sufficient source for guidance about who Jesus is and what he wants. It's not the only way to know things about God, but it is the way that if it doesn't agree with something, then that's something, it's not something I trust. I believe that because my faith gives me access to God through his spirit, I can understand the Bible. I can have the freedom and that responsibility to believe to the satisfaction of my conscience and to respect other Christians who differ with me in good faith. And I don't do any of this alone because, again, through access to this spirit that God gives me, I'm part of this priesthood with all my brothers and sisters in the church. And so together, we adopt this posture of Jesus We love each other, we serve others, we put our gifts and skills to use for Jesus' sake, the priesthood of all believers. These are some central beliefs and practices. You know, that was four weeks' worth right there. And my, my commitment to them is symbolized by baptism. I was baptized into Christ when I responded to the invitation to be a follower of Jesus, and I was baptized by immersion in water as a sign to the world and to my church that I will continue to follow Jesus whatever may come. However many days he gives me, however hard or easy those days are, maintaining hope in the eternal life that Jesus promised when my time on earth is done. Believing that love and life triumph. Thanks be to God. And so that is my path and I am so grateful to have one. And I think that you and those who are around you might find life richer and better on this path too. And so may we be good examples of how to walk that path and the kind of priests who will proclaim the good that God has done to us in a way that will help others see that they really need to be on this path too. Do you join me in And saying the Lord's Prayer as our conclusion to this today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.